hey, for those of you who normally go here, um, after this service, we're going to have um, uh, one of our uh, members who's going to, who is rededicating her life to Christ, um, wanted to give a testimony. She was like, I'd like to give a testimony to anybody who wants to listen um, about what Jesus has done in me and in my life recently to draw me back to him. She's going to give her testimony for about 10 minutes after the service. And if you want to celebrate with her, I would like a few of the elders to say so that we can pray for her and commit her to the Lord afterwards. Um, so if you can do that, would be great. Also, um, one of the things that I want to let you know is that if you're newer, we're going through this series right now called The Gospel Through the Bible, where we're trying to go through all of Scripture and see Jesus on every page, because he said that he was on every page, that he is the center of all of the Scriptures. And um, we have almost 400 people right now in small groups studying this. And um, there's a book that goes along with it called The Gospel Project. And um, you can get it in the office if you don't have it. And even if you're not in a small group, if you do the study um, by yourself as like a devotional time during the week, um, I think it'd be really helpful. So if you haven't got one of these yet, I'd grab one. They're out there. And if you're not in a small group, you can still get in one. So just, there's a small group card in the pew in front of you. You can just fill it out and we'll get you hooked up, okay? Um, So this is the fourth week in the gospel through the Bible. And we're on Genesis 4, which which sounds like this is going to be a long series, right? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like any narrative, like any, any description, the first few pages are often incredibly important, you know? It's like the, the first two minutes of a spy movie. If you miss it, you're done. You might as well go home, try to get a refund, because you're not going to know what's happening in that film, right? So um, that's why we're spending a little more time in Genesis. And, and so th- last week, we talked about the fall in chapter 3, and um, this week we're going to cover chapters 4 through 11. So you're going to want to get a Bible, if you don't have one, and open it to chapter 4, and if you've got a pew Bible, I can tell you the page numbers, too. We'll be on, start on page 6. And I kind of want to, I just want to go, I'm not going to read very much of the passages. I'm just going to kind of talk you through what happened so I don't have to read nine pages. And um, I'll read a couple of the verses that I think are really critical. But after Adam and Eve are, are sort of cast out of the garden because of sin, um, they have some kids. Cain and Abel are their first two sons. And it turns out they didn't get along. Okay? Um, so Cain... Um, was, a, was a gardener. He was a, a crop of the ground person. Abel was a shepherd. And at one point, they brought offerings to God. And it says that Abel brought some of the best of the firstborn. And it says about Cain, he brought some stuff, basically. And that you're supposed to get from that that, you know, Cain, or Abel brought the very best to God because God is the very best. And so it says that God looked on Abel's um, Offering, and he was like, that's an awesome offering. And he didn't, apparently, wasn't as exuberant about Cain's offering. And so Cain gets really upset, and God comes to Cain, and he goes, listen, Cain, um, sin is crouching at your door. It's crouching at your door. And either it's going to have you, or you're going to master it. You've got to beat it, or it's going to beat you. And the very next thing Cain does is he asks his brother to go for a walk, and he kills him. And God says, what on earth just happened? I mean, I thought we had to talk about this. And, of course, it wasn't a big surprise because God knows that. And he's like, you know, now, now you're under a curse because you, you make your living from the ground, but you poured your brother's, brother's blood on the ground. And now you're going to have to be gone from here. And Cain's like, well, everybody's just going to kill me then. And so it says that God put a mark on Cain and said, if anybody kills him, he'll be avenged seven times, Right? And so he goes out, and the rest of chapter 4 is the the lineage of Cain. It's all the people who were born to him. Until you get to, to verse 22, right? And, I'm sorry, verse 23 in chapter 4. And so one of the last descendants of Cain that we hear about right here is a guy named Lamech. And Lamech is kind of like, 
he's like a self-made man. He's just like, you know what? Cain was a good guy and he did some good stuff. But he's like, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to marry as many women as I want. It's the first polygamist in the scriptures, right? And so listen to what he says about himself and how important he is. He says, listen, Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, right? That's nice. What a nice fella, right? Um, And it's interesting because you may know the other place in the Bible where the number 7 and 77 are. There's only two places in the Bible where the number 7 and 77 are put close together. You remember? There's this place where Peter asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times, right? As much as God would forgive, you know, as the opposite of God's vengeance of Cain or something like that. He's like, no, it's going to be more like seven times. It's going to be more like 77 times. That is, Jesus is as gracious as Lamech in his, degra- in his degradation is, is, re- is revengeful, right? It's a, it's a foil, right? And then you get chapter 5, and this is the other line. So after Abel is killed, Adam and Eve have another son, Abel, or I'm sorry, Seth. And Seth has this line, and at the end of chapter 4, in verse 26, if you look there, it says, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And then it says, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. That is, there was worship. So it, it says in Cain's line, the, the only thing that we hear about Cain's line is they build cities, they invest in technology, and they create music, right? But there's no mention of the relationship to God. Those pursuits are simply earthly and worldly pursuits. Now, you can pursue those things in relationship to God, and Enosh's line did. But the thing that's said about Enosh's line is that they called on the name of the Lord. And then a few verses later, you run into Enoch, Right? And it says about Enoch, verse 23 in chapter 5. This is on the bottom of page 8. Altogether, Enoch lives 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. Now, one of the themes of chapter 5 is everybody dies. Just read chapter 5 when you're bored later on in the sermon. And it just goes, so-and-so lived so many years, had so many sons and daughters, and then he died. Lives, had so many sons and daughters, and then he died, 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 right? And, um, Greg, I don't think I'm going to do that section because of how long it went last time. He's—sorry, eh, dude. I left him hanging. That's my bad. He was going to play something on the bass for me for illustration. Um, and so the result is—okay, so, sorry, I apologize. <laughs> you want to do it? We can go back and do it. Let's do it. All right, so let's do it. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Let's do it. No, let's do it. Come on, come on. It's my bad. It's my bad. All right. So, part of what this sermon is about is that there's something really wrong with the world. And it's not wrong with the world, it's wrong with the people. The people are what's wrong with the world, mainly, right? And one example of that is this. So, this is a real Craigslist ad from Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, you have to realize this is from Nashville, okay? So, here's the Craigslist ad. And just go ahead and play when I get to the parts, okay? So, bass player available for paying gigs only. I play G, C, and D. If your songs are not in G, please transpose them into G. If your song has an E minor or a B minor, as difficult as... Or anything off the wall, I will probably sit out that chord. Or I could learn those notes for $30 each. If you want me to do fancy stuff like go back and forth between G and D, 
Well, you're not supposed to make it fancy. You're supposed to make it like really easy. Um, while you hold a G chord, forget it because I'm a pocket player, right? Minimum of $100 per gig within a five mile radius of my zip code. Five miles per, $5 per mile charge after that in areas out of town. Please make sure your gigs are on a Metro Nashville bus route. You can pick me up at my place. I must be home by 8 p.m. due to previous legal hassles and no gigs within 500 yards of a school park or playground. All the nation's best musicians go right to Nashville, you know? Okay, so that's really funny, right? But it's also really sad, right? Like, this, this person is delusional, right? And, and one of the things we have to recognize is that, just like I started my sermon all over again, so one of the things we have to recognize is that sin is not just sins. Sin is not the fact that people do some bad stuff and that that happens. If you think that's what sin is, then almost every religion in the world, every self-help book, every political party will sound like they have a pretty good answer. Until you realize the human problem is 50 times deeper than that. It goes down to the very bottom of human nature, into the very core of what we are, unreachable by most attempts at affecting it. You will not realize that most of the attempts at curing the human condition's problems are laughable. You'll take them really seriously, and you'll be very confused about what to turn to for what we call salvation. I mean, if you went to the doctor and you knew you had some kind of serious condition, but you didn't know what it was, and the doctor said, listen, I'm just going to tell you about how I do medicine. I don't like to be negative, okay? I don't like to be negative. So we're not going to dwell on what's wrong with you, okay? I don't know what's wrong with you, but I've got this treatment that I think you'll really like, right? And he starts going on about the treatment, and I don't know what you would do if you just kind of be politely quiet and say, well, I'll just come back in and we'll get started next time. But I'd be like, hold on there, tiger, okay? Um... I'm not a physician, but I'm not doing any treatment until you know what's wrong with me, until you know exactly what's wrong with me. I don't even want, I mean, I don't even know I want you treating symptoms. You need to, if you don't know what's wrong with me, you are not the person I'm going to look to to help me, right? And there's at least three reasons why that's the case, right? One, I don't want to go through the expense, whatever it costs me to go through your treatment. Treatment, all treatments have a cost, and I don't want to pay it, right? Secondly, I don't want the side effects, Right? I mean, you're going to create unintended consequence side effects and might not even be helping me. And thirdly, as long as I'm doing your dumb remedy that doesn't have any relationship with what's wrong with me, I'm not getting better. I'm just waiting around to get better. And listen, this is what happens when we accept cures to the human condition that aren't true. This is why I'm not a pluralist. This is why I don't stand up here and say, you know, whatever religion you want to believe in, whatever philosophy you want to believe in, whatever, whatever thing you want to believe in, you just believe in that. You just be a good whatever you are. Let's all get along. Let's all be nice. Here's the reason why I don't say that. Because if the gospel is true, if the gospel is true, okay, so for some of you, you just have to stipulate that if, then we are paying an expense of a treatment that cannot help us. We are suffering under the unintended consequences and side effects of that treatment, and we are not getting any better. And you see, when we come to these chapters of the Bible and the rest of what the Bible says about sinful nature and sin, what you begin to realize is the other things that look so attractive as treatments and cures aren't up to the—they aren't up to the disease. 
They might treat some symptoms. They might fool around the edges, but they don't get down to the core. They don't have the capacity to treat what's really wrong with us. Right? And so what that means is that you have to understand the depth and the kind of human fallenness or depravity before you can recognize the size and type of cure we need. The idea that if I can say, listen, Jesus is a cure, if you don't really understand what's wrong with human beings, you'll listen to the message about Jesus and be like, eh, whatever, it's kind of like everything else. Right? I mean, that's—you'll be like, well, that's just unremarkable. Or, 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 you know, I mean, you remember what the Romans used to call Christians? You know, besides cannibals, right? Haters of humanity, right? They believe that Christians um, committed incest because they called their—they called women brothers, brother and sister, right? They believe that we were cannibals because we ate the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, right? You can see how that happened. And they called, they called Christians haters of humanity because Christians believe in depravity. They believe that there was something fundamentally wrong with humans at the very deepest part, and therefore we needed to experience the new birth or regeneration. And that was the only cure for the human problem. And so the Romans, like modern-day people, looked at the Christians and said, you're so negative. You're so negative. Ooh, like you hate humanity. But Augustine and the apologists looked back and they said, no, no, we love humanity because we want humanity to have the cure it requires. The regenerating power of Jesus. Right? So, back to Genesis. So you get to Lamech, and then you get on to the line of Seth. And, and the, the line of Seth seems to have some good news in it, right? You've got somebody, people calling on the name of the Lord, right? You've got Enoch, who God just takes away. And it ultimately ends with a transition to Noah, right? Noah's the guy God's going to pick to survive through the flood, right? That sounds pretty good, right? But then you get to chapter 6, and I don't even want to read the passage because it'll just take you in 50 different directions. But in chapters, the beginning of chapter 6, there's a section where it says the sons of God— Okay, so let's just, let's just read it, because otherwise you're going to read what I'm talking. Um, when men began to increase in number on the earth, and da- daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be numbered 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God and the daughters of men— went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. All right, listen. So a lot of ink has been spilled on this in the history of the church, right? There's three views. One is that angels got together procreatively with good-looking women and had children. Those children were like angelic sort of giant things. And they were pretty awesome dudes, apparently. Okay, that's one view. The second view is... Sons of God, that, that statement. Okay, so, so that, the fir- that first view, sons of God, they take sons of God from the book of Job. Sons of God in the book of Job are always angels, okay? Now, in the Psalms, there are, there are, is the king is declared the son of God, right? So the second view is um, the, who, the people who began, began to become the kings of the different clans of people, instead of being workers of reform among their peoples, they, become the wor- they became the worst possible people. So they took as many women as they wanted. Any, any good-looking woman, they just were like, oh, you're going to be one of my wives. And, or they would, you know, they would instill prima octane, all that kind of stuff. And they would, you know, and it was terrible. It was very oppressive. And so that was one of the reasons God judged. And so you had lots of heroes because all the people who rose to the top of the warring clans had lots of women and they had lots of kids and you had lots of heroes and that's one way to look at it. The third is, and I, I think the third one's probably right, but it's very hard to know from the text, is that you've got two lines up until this point, right? 
you've got the line of Cain, which is degrading and degrading and degrading down to Lamech. And then you get the line of Seth, which is you've got people calling on the name of the Lord, and you've got people who are take, being taken away with God, and then God finds, counts Noah righteous. And so there are some people, and this goes all the way back to the early church. Augustine was one of the first people who talked about this, is that the sons of God are the line of Seth. These are people who believe in God. But the, the, the problem is, is that they thought that the daughters of Cain were really hot. And so, and there's this theme all through the Old Testament. If you read the whole Bible, there's this theme of do not marry somebody and build a family and a line and a people with somebody who does not believe in the Lord, right? Explicitly in Scripture, a number of times, and there's actually passages where you see Israel starting to decline because they marry whoever they feel like marrying. And so the idea there would be that you've got this line of people, these clans that do not follow God. And then you have the clans of Seth who follow God. And, but the guys who should be the spiritual leaders in the line of Seth go, she is really nice looking. And so they, the clans begin to mix. And the purity just is lost. And so you get this final complete degradation of all the clans. So God finally says, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I think that's probably right. It's really hard to tell, okay? But there's your five-minute discursus on Old Testament theology for the day. Now, the point is that by the time you get to verse 5, there are a couple really important verses. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every—now listen to this—and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. That's a pretty significant level of degradation, wouldn't you say? And then listen to what it says. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain— so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind from, the, from whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Right? So and then you get the flood. Most people have heard of the flood probably. If not, just keep reading. Essentially what happens, there's, there's a couple things to look at here. The, the first is that there's a profound sense of degradation among humanity, right? It's just about as bad as it can be. The second thing is to recognize that God has chosen to unite himself emotionally with his creation. Like when, when they go bad, it says that he is grieved and full of pain in his heart. That's important. This is not something God does willy-nilly. Oh, I think I'll just kill everybody. We'll start over. And then it says that he, he um, that he's sorry that he made Humanity, And it's, it's important to look at that for a little bit because a lot of people can get really cynical about that. They're like, look, it's God repents, right? I mean, like, how sovereign is a God who repents, right? I mean, am I right? Am I right? Um, and it's not actually as good an argument as you think. Um, there's this place in the book of Samuel where um, Saul has been made king. So he's like the first big king of like Israel as a nation. And he's made king. And God, God says, listen, he says, says to the people, listen, pick who you want. And then I will, I'll, I will select somebody from among you and you will anoint him king. And, and you'll get, because you want a king, I'll give you one. You, sh- you shouldn't want one. You should just let God be king. But if you want one here, I'll give you one. And here he is. So they get Saul, right? And then Saul does a bunch of pragmatic stuff. Like he doesn't trust in God. He just does what he thinks is going to win in battles and get the people on his side, right? And so he's a pragmatist and God decides to judge him because he doesn't want a pragmatist as the king of his people. He wants a believer as king of his people. And so he says, I have repented of making you king, Saul. Right? And you're like, okay, Nick, you're just, you're just piling wood, you're wood on that fire. Okay, right. But here's the thing. In the next couple of verses, he actually gives the reason why he's repenting. Okay? So God is repenting. Why is God repenting? He says, listen, here's why I'm repenting. Because I'm God and I don't repent. 
It's a really funny passage. He's like, listen, I'm repenting of making Saul king, and the reason I am repenting of it is because I am God, and I do not repent. And people are kind of like, uh, can we have a few more verses here, right? And, and there's actually a longer section in there. You can look it up in the book of First Samuel. But here's what God is saying. The internal character of God does not change. He is who he is. That doesn't change. It never changes. And so therefore, his relationship to contingent external actions can cause him to change what he decides to do. And so we can say, I'm going to do this, and something can change, and he repents of what he promised. He changes what he was going to do in relationship to what's happening in real time. Why? Because he doesn't change. So if he's going to bless somebody who believes in and follows him, he can say, I'm going to bless you. And the person says, well, I'm not going to believe and follow you. And he goes, well, I'm not going to bless you. He didn't repent. He didn't change his character. He changed his relationship and how he was interacting with the person. He did that with Saul. He does that with humanity. He repents of the blessing he meant to give them when they were supposed to be in relationship to him. Now they've totally turned away from that. And so he changes his mind in terms of what he's going to do with it because God never changes his mind. Right? Hope that made sense to you. Now, the point here is, and now there's a really important thing that happens here. So the flood happens, right? So Noah builds the ark. He and his three sons and their wives and his wife, eight people all together, are in the ark. They survive the flood. They get out of the, out of the boat, right? He sacrificed, Noah sacrifices to God. God makes this new covenant with people and with the earth, and he takes away the curse he's put on the ground, right? And then what happens? Noah gets drunk and ends up laying around naked. One of his sons humiliates him. The other two sons try to kind of undo the thing, and then Noah curses Canaan, and, and off we go again. And by the end, the time you get to the end of the next chapter, in chapter 11, you get the Tower of Babel. And this is important to remember these verses because they'll matter next week. So for those of you who are coming back. Now, the, this, is, this is on verse, page 15 in the Pew Bible. Chapter 11, right, right, I'm reading at the big 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found, it, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used the bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and we will not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Right? And then God comes in, he confuses their languages and scatters them all over the earth. Now, now think about this. Now, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, you're just kind of like, it's just God being mean again. Okay. But if you read the first two chapters of Genesis— Right? What did God, why did God create people? Right? He created people for a very specific reason. To bear his image, to image him in the earth, that is to make a name for him, so the whole earth would know what God is like. And then secondly, to subdue the earth and therefore scatter across the whole earth and bring out of the earth its creative potential. Right? Okay, so their job is to make a name for God. And to bring out of the whole earth its creative potential, what do they do? They build a city to make a name for themselves so that they won't be scattered over the whole earth. That is, they completely reject again the whole reason they were created and God's whole purpose for making them. Now, there's three things I think we need to learn about sin. Sorry, I had tricky slides for all this stuff. There's three things we need to learn about sin from all this, okay? 
The first is we need to see sin as separation, but we need to see it differently than, than Christians usually do. You've probably heard um, people say, listen, God hates sin. He can't have it in his presence. And so when, you know, he, you know, he separates himself from sin and judges sin. And so we can't come to his presence unless we receive some kind of righteousness. That's totally, is that right? It is right, isn't it? It is right, biblically speaking. God does remove himself from sin. There is separation between him and sin. Um, he does judge and condemn sin, and then he offers salvation so that we can enter back into this relationship with him. But one of the things that is important to recognize is if you read the book of Genesis, these early chapters, after Adam and Eve sin, does God become the deist God, right? Does he go, oh, now you've sinned, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand way over here, and I've told you what to do, and you can just do that, and I, you won't, not a thing will be heard from me. That's not really what happens, is it? On the very next page, Cain and God are having an argument, right? The next page. Sin has happened. You've got a guy who's going to be the first murderer, right? And God says, hey, Cain, listen. You know, you brought your offering. It's clear I didn't like it. It's because it was terrible. But listen, if you just do what's right, won't I accept you? Am I, am I unreasonable? Or are you being irrational, right? That's basically the argument. And that's a pretty act. That's not a deist God. I mean, God's talking to the first killer, right? And then later, you know, people call on the name of the Lord, and he talks to Noah, and then he talks to Abraham. This idea that God has separated himself from us is partially true. But one of the things we need to recognize is that the separator is as much or more us. We become uncomfortable with God's presence, and we will do anything to be out of it. That's what the claim of Scripture is. It's, and, you know, there's this great passage in the screw tape letters, these two demons talking about how to tempt this Christian. And the over, the, like, the, 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 like, administrator demon goes, listen, here's the thing you gotta know about tempting Christians about prayer. Just tell them, just put anything in their head to distract them because they don't want to talk to God. Even the Christians, the people who believe in Jesus and want to do God's will and all that kind of stuff, yeah, they say that stuff. But when it comes right down to it and they start to pray, they're not really opening themselves up to God. Anything he would say, anything he would reveal, anything they could learn about him, really, they they don't really want to do that because they don't really know what God might ask of them. They're terrified. And so, put any diversion in their head and they'll be happy to walk down that rabbit trail. Right? Some truth to that. And, and since the fall, yes, God has created a level of separation because of sin. But he's also been interacting with humans all along. The larger part of separation is that we don't want to be in God's presence. We're running much more than God is separating And one of the things we have to recognize about ourselves is we need to realize the whole concept of spiritual seeking is a level of self-congratulation we should deny ourselves. The whole culture is full of people who talk about themselves as spiritual seekers, and we're all just full of it. We we are not beings who are going around completely dedicated to seeking what is spiritually true and how we can fully live in accord with it. That is not true. We're sort of searching around for some spiritual-ish things that will make us feel kind of better or make us more successful. That is not the same thing. And even those of us who are believers, we have to stop believing that we sought Jesus. That we're Christians because our neighbors don't want Jesus, but we certainly do, and we're these authentic spiritual seekers, and so we found Jesus. Bull. Okay? Um... Even when we seek, we're terrible at it. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like losing a kid at Disney World. Have you ever lost a kid at Disney World? 
I did a bunch of times. Okay, I lived in Florida. So, I mean, just you go get your own corn dog, and then it'll come back for 50 minutes. You know, who would have thought, right? So, you know, when the kid finally realizes that they're lost, they, don't, they, they come looking for you, right? Right? I mean, if you trade them, listen, if you can't find us, stay put, and I'll blow, okay, whatever, right? Yeah, or meet us at the whatever roller coaster, right? But they never find you. You always find them looking for you because you're better at finding. And you see, even those of us who are like, well, I was looking for God. I was looking for God when I came to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you were. But you're like the kid at the Disney World. You were never going to find him. You just, just happened when he found you, you were kind of looking for him really badly. Right? And one of the things we have to recognize is that the separation, the, the, the part of depravity that creates separation is not just God playing coy. It is us not wanting him. And until we do some kind of business with that, until we realize that, until we embrace that truth about ourselves, we're never going to really connect with God. Because connecting with God is spiritually and emotionally dying. You, there, are, there are some very painful things that have to be let go before you can really say, God, I'm totally open. Whatever it is your name requires, whatever you want. I, I just want to live. I want to live with, for, in right relationship with you. I want to live beautifully. I want to live in accord with your character. I want to be like Jesus. There is something that has to—very difficult, and you have to keep killing it. You can't just kill it one time to go to some altar call and be like, I believe in Jesus. You've got to kill it all the time. And if you don't believe that about yourself, we will be constantly separating ourselves from God and not knowing why we feel so distant and what's blah. And we'll indulge ourselves with the idea in the midst of that that we're these wonderful spiritual seekers, and so is everybody else. The second thing is sin is depravity. That sin is not that we do sins. That sin is an unstable mutation at the very base of our nature as human beings. It's like a disease. In, in Lewis's space novels, um, you know, there's this, in the first of Lewis's space trilogy, the, he's, he's on this planet. So the human, Ransom from Earth, is on this planet, and he's trying to explain the fall to, on a planet where the fall has never happened. And he's like, he's talking to this like big beaver creature and, and he's like, the guy's like, so what's the fall? He's like, because you can't just say sin. You got to like describe something they know. And he's like, it's kind of like if everything was made for a purpose, but everything was bent. Nothing was straight. And so nothing fit. And so it still was the thing you made, but it was kind of bent so that it didn't work right. So it's like having a bike and you're trying to ride it, but the, the wheels are bent. Like, that doesn't work very well, right? There's a, reason, there's a reason why it's really important to understand what we mean by this. Because it's very easy to misunderstand the biblical doctrine of depravity and, and get in our heads things that will actually cause us to attack our own faith. Right? Or if you're not a Christian, to make Christianity sound dumb to you. So in, in the New Testament, um, the sinful nature is often called the flesh, which can cause you to think that the sinful nature is what? Your body, right? It's like, so you've got these lower animal things, but there's the higher. Uh, 
Um, but that's really not what flesh means when Paul uses it. In fact, in the NIV, it's, not, it's translated sinful nature, right? To try to get away from that idea. Millard Erickson, a systematic theologian, wrote in his systematic theology this about that. By flesh, Paul does not mean the physical nature of human beings. There's nothing inherently evil about the hu- human bodily makeup. Rather, the term designates the self-centered life, denial or rejection of God. This is something that has become part of human nature, a tendency or bias towards sin and away from doing God's will. In fact, if you look at Paul's letters, he'll, he'll say flesh a lot, and then in places where he, he means the physical body, he'll use a different Greek word for body. It doesn't mean body. He means this bentness towards self-centeredness and running from God. So the way we translate it then is we translate it sinful nature, right? If you read the, the Bible you have right in front of you, in, Ro- in Romans, for example, it calls the flesh the sinful nature, which is better, right? But it also has kind of a problem to it because— if you think in terms of, okay, so I have a sinful nature and then I have a non, uh, you know, a human nature, and I've got these two natures, the problem is, is that sin is always taking advantage of something in human nature. And it can cause you to believe that things that are good are bad, which will make you ultimately dump Christianity because you won't dump yourself. Let me give you an example. So let's say you were persuaded that the, one of the seven deadly sins, the sin of gluttony, was in fact sinful, okay? So the idea of consuming too much out of need or pleasure, either in volume or in luxury, is inherently sinful, okay? Let's say you believe that. So what human function does that sit on, right? It sits on our capacity for hunger— and the relationship of that capacity to enjoyment, right? So in human nature, there's a relationship between hunger and enjoyment that exists within who we are as people, right? And gluttony is the bending of that. It's the twisting of it. It's the overworking of it. It's the getting it out of whack and out of balance, right? But see, if you believe that gluttony is a—your your propensity toward it is a function of your sinful nature— before you know it, you start to believe that what, what the Bible is teaching is that your hunger in the relationship of hunger and enjoyment is, in, is sinful, and therefore Christianity is dumb. Right? It's very easy to think that. And so you get people who think that Christianity is against enjoyment, fun, sex. Insert good human thing. Christianity is against it. Oh, we're against that. You can't even have any fun if you're a Christian. You can't be, pl- you know, and, and there are some Christians who fall into that. The latest generation of Puritans, before Puritanism fell apart, I mean, there was a sense like playing around was wrong because you weren't being industrious. But, but there, there's a kind of frivolity that there's nothing anti-scriptural about. In fact, Lewis has a great section on fun in the Screwtape Letters. And how fun is a beautiful thing that we have an inherent capacity towards, and we should enjoy it. And in fact, sometimes the strongest people are the people who know how to have fun in any situation. Right? I I have four kids now. It's the only way not to go crazy. Right? And so you see, that's the reason why the concept of pervasive or total depravity, this word about original sin or the human depravity is so important. Because... Sin is not its own nature. It is a breaking and twisting and infecting of our human nature, which is good. God created human beings with a human nature to image who he is, and that is inherently good. And then it has been infected and diseased and twisted and mutated by sin. And so things that are inherently humanly good, that are embraced by Scripture— it says in First Thessalonians, God has given all things to us for our, in, our what? Do you know the word? Enjoyment. 
right? And so we've got to understand that whatever we mean by the sinful nature or depravity, we have to understand that it is a twisting of our human nature. It's not some other nature, because otherwise that can bring us to believe all these fallacies that people fall into. Most of the fallacies that people have about biblical Christian faith have nothing to do with biblical Christian faith. They heard one idea about Christian faith, they jumped to a conclusion that doesn't logically follow, and they think that they have some big hole in Christian faith. It's so frustrating if you know anything about Christianity, because you're kind of like, oh, seriously, you really think that's a good argument? It's kind of like when we make fun of other people's views, usually, right? And so the, the, the idea, Cal, it was, was from, essentially from John Calvin, this idea of total depravity, which by, he meant, by that he meant pervasive depravity, meaning if you look at everything that makes you up as a human— Depravity's in everything. Everything that's part of your good human nature that God created you to have, there's something in it. That mutation is in it, and it's unstable. That diseasedness is in there, but it doesn't take away the inherent goodness. The two are in a kind of tension with each other, and that's what's happening when we come to faith in Jesus, and God does this work of regeneration that the Bible talks about. That there's this new birth, a new creation, a taking out a heart of stone, a putting in a heart of flesh. What theologians have called regeneration. When that happens, it is this re-energizing of the human nature and its relationship with God's Holy Spirit to begin to unwork and, and pull out and stabilize this mutation so that what we were made to be can be remade. That's why Colossians can talk about regeneration being a remaking of the image of God. It's a treatment to the disease of sin that's on our human nature. And then lastly and quickly, um, Sin is degradation. You see, because you might say, you know, Nick, okay, so fine. People do bad stuff. People do bad stuff. Even on some level, we might even be bad because, you know, we all lock our doors at night. But when you put us all together and all the good things about us, you put them all together and you put like a Jiminy Cricket to tell us to dream our dreams in the middle of it all, you know, don't don't we become more together than we are individually? And my answer to that is no. No. Wake up and smell the degradation. No. Not naturally. No, in this passage, as people get together, the the societies tend to get worse, not better. The natural effect of sin in human societies, without some, some divine activity of renewal coming in and breaking things open again, is degradation, not, not growth, not beauty, not beauty. And, and this happens in the Bible a number of times. You see it in this passage, but then a couple books later, there's a book called Judges. So the people have come out of Israel. They're all hyped to have the promised land of God. They've got God's covenant. They've got God's leader. They are ready to roll. And then they take over Israel, and they're in there, and they all have these family things that God has given them, and houses they didn't build, and fruit trees they didn't plant, and everything is awesome. And God's like, you're welcome. And what happens? It's just every generation— has just more forgot what God has done, more disinterested, more interested in just building their own name, just step after step after step. In fact, the theme of the book of Judges is people just doing whatever they want. In fact, the phrase, every man did what was right in his own eyes, recurs in that book a number of times. And then when you get into the age of kings, so finally there's Samuel, and he kind of brings everybody back on track, right? And then you get the first king, and Saul's kind of terrible. And the, but then there's David, right? And God sets up this line of kings, right? And so finally you've got a leader, and you're going to have a line of leaders that are actually after God's heart, and they love God. And so the people are going to be brought out of this corporate degradation, and they're going to go forward to follow God. And what happens? The line of king fails in two generations. And it fails to the guy who has a divine level of wisdom. 
God gives his people a man with a superlative education, full of wisdom, thousands of proverbs on the tip of his tongue. And it is his generation, it is his son where the line of king fails. And then there's degradation in the line of kings until both separated kingdoms fail. And so, one of the things, therefore, that has sprung up in, in only two religions in the world is, is a watchfulness literature. And can you guess what two religions they are? Judaism and Christianity. Other religions have similar sorts of concepts, but they mean something different by them. Both Judaism and Christianity, if you read a mystical Jewish rabbi today, or almost any Christian writing on spiritual growth throughout the history of the church, they will always talk about, they will talk about watchfulness, right? Do you know how we've snuck this into High Point Church? Watchfulness isn't a cool thing to say, right? That sounds negative. Sounds like it's like a battle metaphor. We don't want that. But have you heard me say, listen, spiritual growth is for everybody? Have you heard me say that? We should all be trying to grow spiritually? What does that mean? You see what that assumes? See, if if we're trying to grow spiritually, we believe in sin, we believe in becoming like Jesus, what spiritual growth assumes is that we're being watchful over our lives. We're looking for things God would want to do something about, and we're applying the gospel into those things so that we can grow spiritually. Spiritual growth, if you understand it biblically, presumes and assumes everywhere our own watchfulness of spirit over our own lives, and what do you think accountability is? Accountability is, by definition, us being watchful over each other. We're going to have elder elections. You know, we're, we're taking our elder nominations right now. What are elders? What, what does the Bible charge them with? To keep watch over God's flock. What's the central metaphor of what a spiritual leader in the Christian church is? A shepherd. What do shepherds do? They watch over sheep, right? And so you see, the argument of Christian theology all the way through the scriptures is, listen, human beings don't get better together. They get worse together. Unless there is a divine activity and principle of renewal interjecting. And to the extent to which there's a group of people renewed by that and watchful over the growth of that renewal, there is degradation. You are always moving one way or another. Humanity is always degrading unless it is intentionally, by faith, and in response to divine activity, moving in the way of renewal. That's why we always have to be trying to grow spiritually all the time. And if you doubt that, just, you know, go take a History 101 course at the university. And you will, you will hear a history of societies throughout the whole history of the world that rose, they had a generation of decadence that wasn't watchful, and a collapse. Over and over and over again. To which Malcolm Muggeridge said, nations rise and nations fall. And we don't believe that about our own civilization. But when we read history books, we, we don't have a hard time believing that that's what happened to the Assyrians or the Romans at all, right? Well, the, Ro- the Assyrians got decadent and then they fell apart. Oh, yeah! Oh, the Romans, they had these generations of decadence and then they fell apart. Oh, that makes perfect sense, right? But the minute you recognize that, then all of a sudden, the watchfulness of the gospel makes sense, right? Think about this. What happens when you come to Jesus? Right? Scripture says when you come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you from the inside out. There is a connection between God's Spirit, His own intelligence, and your conscience, right? John 16 says, what's the Holy Spirit do? It convicts you in your conscience in relationship to righteousness, right? And 
he's the comforter, comforter, but also the advocate. That he's, he's also kind of watching your back and working with who you are inside to try to help you become watchful. That's like the first step of spirituality. But also you become one of Jesus, in John 10, one of his sheep. And what does it say about Jesus as a shepherd? I don't lose my sheep. It's basically what, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, right? But Jesus, and the whole point of John 10 is, listen, I know my sheep, and I don't lose them. Why? Because he is the perf- perfectly watchful Savior. And what is the church supposed to be? It's the, supposed to be the little watchful flock over which God sets watchful people. Right? And, and see, if you, see, it will get you past the whole, like, I like religion, but not the church, or I like Jesus, but I don't want to be part of an organized religion. Well, then you don't like Jesus because you, you don't believe what he says about the nature of human beings. If you believe that part of our depravity is our corporate degradation, you will realize that as bad as the church can be, because guess what? The church is subject to degradation when it isn't watchful. But when the church is full of the Spirit and being watchful and fighting against the process of corporate degradation, you'll realize that if that's part of what you are as a person, you actually desperately need the little flock of watchful ones that Jesus is bringing together that he calls the church. Let me end with this. Do you know what the name Noah means? If you don't, the little letters by names in your Bible, at the margin it says. And the name Noah means he brings comfort. Think about Noah. Noah's father said, I'm naming him Noah because he'll break the curse. Do you know what imputation is? It's when somebody else's goodness gets credited to you, right? You're on a team at work. One person on your team is awesome. Everybody gets credit, right? Credit just got imputed to you. You didn't earn it, but somebody else's got credited to you, right? How did Noah's family get saved? From the flood, right? Noah was righteous. Doesn't say anything about his sons. His sons don't seem to be particularly righteous. But the six of them, the three sons and their wives, Noah's righteousness and his salvation was imputed to them because Noah built the ark and was told by God he could invite them onto it. He did, and they did. They had to get on. But then God saved him, saved them through the wood of the ark and through, through the flood and through death and hell and damnation and the, the judgment of his own judgment. Now think about Jesus, right? Noah is the comforter who imputes his righteousness to those he saves. He wins a covenant of grace with God where God takes away the curse and says he will now bless the earth, right? And he, cre- he creates a new family of a watchful people, a new covenant of people of God, right? Now, the fact is, is that there's one truer and greater than Noah who has come, right? In 1 Peter, Peter says that, that Christ and Noah equate to each other. And so, such even, he takes it so far as to say, just as Noah's family was saved through the water— so, when we as believers get baptized, it's not, we're not getting washed in the water. It's a pledge of a conscience towards God. I'm going to submit to God's will. That's what they had to do to get on the ark, right? They had to say, you know, the, the, it's going to come. The flood's going to come. I'm going to get on the ark. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us just like Noah's was to them. And Noah's name may mean comfort, but Jesus is the one who brings the lasting and truest comfort. Jesus is on this page of the Bible, too. The thing is, is that just like Noah's family had to get on the ark, so do you. It's a pledge of a clean conscience towards God. There has to be an action of faith. But to that action of faith, Jesus promises at least those three things. That he becomes the shepherd 
that he regenerates us at the very bottom of our very nature supernaturally. It is the only cure for a sickness that's that, that's that deep. And there's a continued work of the Spirit and there's a society of watchful people that are designed to come around each other and work out that salvation as we live. And you will never, ever buy into the gospel on its deepest level unless you get a biblical doctrine of what's wrong with us. But let me just say one thing if you don't, if you don't buy this. Let me just tell you just one thing about that. You will never be emotionally free until you believe it. The emotional freedom that comes from believing you're terrible and yet God loves you and has saved you in Christ anyway if you will just accept it is enormously freeing. Performance is gone. The need for self-adulation is gone. Humility makes perfect sense. Now, you fight against, you fight against all that stuff the rest of your life. But the reason to be free is there, and now you just need to apply it to who you are. Um, I, people, t- people make fun of me all the time for saying too much about our sinfulness. But listen, I love the doctrine of depravity. I glory in the doctrine of depravity. It's so freeing. So freeing. Let's you admit you're wrong builds your relationships, makes you cherish Jesus, sets you on the path of who you can be, tips you off that you need to be watchful all the time, puts you in a group of people who have enough sense about who they really are, that, they, that they'll listen to you, hold them accountable, they'll hold you accountable, we'll try to go somewhere together spiritually. I love the doctrine of depravity because there's a Savior. If there wasn't a Savior, it wouldn't be as encouraging. <laughs> but because there's a Savior, I love it. Because it's true and because it is beautiful in what it does for me. Let's pray. Father, we, we lift up to you um, ourselves and those of us who are able, we, we're, we open ourselves to you to say that um, we receive and embrace what Scripture says about who and what we are. Those who, who don't, I pray that you would do a work of persuasion in them to the truth of what you believe about yourself. And whatever I said that you don't like, I pray that it would pass easily off the minds of people, but that there would be a convicting sense in the things that I've said that are right. And I pray that we would, um, we would be drawn to you, that we would recognize we don't have to be separated. Um, we don't have to, um, we don't have to accept the final word of depravity, and we don't have to, to slide down the road of degradation. But the gospel, the saving work that you bring can actually turn these things around and take us in a new direction. We pray that you would do that work in us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.